Hi everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today's case is quite a famous one, one I went back and forth about covering for some time. Many true crime reporters and creators have covered the murder and attempted murder of Diane Downs' children, and for a lot of people, I think the case is very open and shut, and that's the way they tell it online, that's the way it's portrayed online. And at the end of the story, you get, spoiler alert, Diane's conviction. However, few have elaborated on the discussion of Diane's potential innocence. Hear me out. Do I believe Diane Downs is responsible for murdering her child and attempting to murder the others? I do. Do I believe Diane Downs was granted fair and just due process? From some of the documents that I've seen, some of which that I will be elaborating on today, I'm not entirely sure. With any case, it's the responsibility of the defense to cast reasonable doubt on their client's guilt given the evidence provided by the prosecution during discovery. Which, by the way, discovery is the process where before a trial begins, both the defense and the prosecution come together and exchange all of their evidence to each other, both damning and potentially exculpatory. But what if the defense is not given full disclosure of the prosecution's evidence? If the defense is not made aware of documents regarding a potential alternative suspects or inconsistencies in physical evidence, then it is much more difficult to refute claims made by the prosecution in court. With that, I'm going to tell you the story of how Diane Downs ended up in the courtroom in the first place, and you can come to your own conclusions. As usual, if you're interested, all source material will be available on my website at crimopediapod.ca for your own interest, and with that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Elizabeth Diane Downs, or just Diane as she was known to so many people, was born to parents Wellesley and Willa Dean Fredrickson on August 7th of 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona, United States. Diane's parents were apparently strict and subscribed themselves to the Baptist Church, with their familial structure and core beliefs reportedly hindering the ability of them to provide adequate parental warmth and comfort to Diane as she was growing up. Diane graduated from the Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, which is where she would meet her future husband, Steve Downs, and afterwards, she enrolled at the Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Orange, California. And yes, if you're unfamiliar with the area, it's not Orange County or Orange Cove, California, it's just Orange. Diane would be expelled from this Baptist Bible college, interestingly for promiscuous behavior, which I don't believe is a standard that is currently upheld in many academic institutions today. In short, Diane and Steve would get married to each other on November 13th of 1973, which was hardly a year behind the birth of their first child, Christy Ann, who was born in 1974. Cheryl Lynn, the next child, followed shortly in 1976 and another three years later, in 1979, Stephen Daniel, aka Danny, was born. Unfortunately, Diane and Steve would divorce in 1980 after apparently Steve could not live with the fact that their most recent child, Danny, was actually fathered by another man after Steve had a vasectomy. Regardless of the way the relationship ended, Diane was reportedly grateful for the birth of all three children with Steve and would continue to raise them as a single mother. 
Diane spent most of her days employed at the United States Postal Service and was assigned mail routes in Chandler, Arizona. And she was working this job when she met a man by the name of Robert Knickerbocker. Robert was a married man who had also worked in the same post office as Diane in Chandler, and Diane was under the impression that Robert would leave his wife, Charlene Knickerbocker, to be with her. Through their affair, she became so convinced of this that when she moved to Cottage Grove, Oregon, United States with her children in April of 1983, she seemed to be awaiting for him to join her. Diane began writing to Robert after I presume not hearing from him as frequently once she moved, and I wanted to read you some excerpts of these letters as provided by the Washington Post. On April 21st, 1983, Diane is quoted as saying in a letter to Robert, I still think of you as my best friend and lover. You keep telling me to go away to find someone else. On April 29th, she says, It doesn't matter what Charlene says. I'm a little sad that she convinced you that kids would be a burden because I know it would not be true. On May 11th, Diane writes, I have three beautiful children I love more than anyone else. I think I even love them more than you now. Danny says he's my best buddy and I'm his best buddy. He always gives me kissing and hugs. Every morning when I go to work, he waves and says, bye mom, pick me up after work, I love you. What I haven't told you yet is that on May 8th of 1982, Diane actually gave birth to another child as a surrogate for another family. In February of 1983, almost a full year afterwards, she gave an interview with the Washington Post being featured in an article about surrogacy where she's quoted as saying, people have wondered why I won't regret this, giving up the baby, and that's very easy to answer. When you kill a child, when you have an abortion, you've terminated something, you've murdered somebody. It's cruel, it's horrible, it's terrible. But when you do something out of love, when you carry a child for someone else and turn that life over to them, you haven't done anything bad. And it's nothing you look back on and regret. It's good. For context, I don't agree with what Diane said here at all, but Diane did have an abortion at one point and was very upset over her decision to do so, one that would haunt her forever. However, it would only be a few months later after this interview that the true irony of these statements to the Washington Post would come to fruition, only two days after her letters to Robert Knickerbocker and diary entries stopped. On May 19th of 1983, again, only two days after her entries to Robert stopped, Diane Downs and her children were driving in her 1983 Nissan Pulsar down Old Mohawk Road in Springfield, Oregon, around 10 p.m. with a destination unknown. Her daughter Cheryl Lynn was in the front passenger seat and Christy and Danny were in the back seat as Diane drove them down this desolate road with thick forest on one side and an overgrown field on the other. At some point during this random road trip, an incident occurred, the details of which are central to the argument of this case, where Cheryl, who at the time was seven years old, was shot dead in the front seat of Diane's car. Danny being three years old and Christy being eight years old were also shot, both being critically injured. Upon arrival to Mackenzie Williamette Hospital, Cheryl was deceased and Danny, again only three years old, was paralyzed from the waist down and Christy had suffered a stroke. 
Diane herself was also shot in the left forearm and was claiming to the hospital staff as well as police who had arrived shortly after that as she was driving, a strange man flagged her vehicle down. Diane claims to have pulled over to help this man with whatever he needed, and when she did stop, he attempted to hijack the vehicle. When Diane resisted, this man allegedly then pulled out a handgun and attempted to murder her and her three children. The scene at the hospital that night was described as an emergency physician's nightmare by Dr. John Mackey, who was the attending in the emergency department when Diane and her children arrived. Despite the chaotic commotion at the emergency room that evening, hospital staff and later police would become very suspicious of Diane's recount of the events that unfolded. According to Dr. John Mackey and many others, Diane was carrying herself with an eerily calm demeanor for someone who had just experienced a very gruesome, traumatic loss. Diane didn't seem tearful or angry and wasn't talking much about how one of her daughters was deceased. She was calm and speaking in a very self-assured manner, even occasionally smiling and giggling. If you've heard of this case before or have seen images of Diane Downs, then you've likely seen TV interviews of her discussing what happened to her and her children to reporters. It's unnerving, but Diane is clearly grinning in a way that makes it seem like she's trying to hold back a smile and is unable to. But we'll talk about that a bit later. Now, before we get too hung up on Diane's demeanor, I think it's reasonable to mention the argument that it's pretty insensitive and unreliable to judge someone's character based on their reaction to serious events and trauma. But police, especially homicide investigators, are trained to sniff out people's bullshit and their internal alarm bells were certainly ringing when Diane was speaking to them. Amongst her odd behavior that night was a phone call that was placed by Diane promptly after she arrived at the hospital to none other than Robert Knickerbocker. Not Steve, the father of the seriously wounded children being treated for life-threatening gunshot wounds. Additionally, Robert would disclose to police that their relationship as described by Diane was not what it seemed. Diane was very infatuated with Robert, if not self-admitted, then quite obvious by the letter she was writing to him. But Robert would later disclose to police that not only was he relieved when Diane moved away from Arizona where he lived to the state of Oregon, so that he could get away from her and potentially reconcile with his own wife, but he also told police that he knew Diane did in fact own a 22 caliber handgun, which happened to be the same type of gun used at the crime scene, a detail that Diane conveniently neglected to mention when questioned later and one that would be corroborated by her own ex-husband, Steve Downs. Diane's behavior was quite odd given the scene at hand, and then you have people who cannot attest to her reliability as a witness, but the suspicion of Diane's involvement in the brutal attack on her own children only grew when several witnesses came forward to police stating that they saw Diane driving very slowly towards the hospital coming from the direction of Mohawk Road after the attack. Which in and of itself is quite suspicious, but also directly conflicted with her own story about allegedly racing to the hospital after she had overcome the gunman. These witnesses said that Diane was driving somewhere in the ballpark of less than 20 kilometers an hour, which is very obviously and distinctly slow, and it's quite a lot slower than any reasonable person would drive to the hospital if their three children had just been shot in the torso. It all came to a head when Diane went to visit her surviving daughter, Christy, who had suffered a stroke at only eight years old and was recovering in hospital. 
With little to no voluntary mobility, Christy's reaction to seeing her mother enter her hospital room can only be described by her elevated heart rate and glazed over fear-stricken eyes. Thankfully, police didn't need to wait much longer before making a move on Diane, and when they found out that Diane likely owned the handgun and they were able to confirm that she did in fact purchase one in Arizona not too long before the children were shot, although from my research I'm not entirely sure how they arrived at this proof, whether it be a receipt, surveillance video, purchase logs from the store, etc. Unfortunately, police were never able to recover this weapon, although there were many searches conducted specifically to find it, including that of the nearby Williamette River and Diane's home. But what they did find, however, were bullet casings in her home that had the exact same extractor markings matching the type of bullets fired by the murder weapon. For some context, extractor marks are one of many important features of ballistic analysis because they are unique to the type of weapon used at the time of discharging a firearm. This evidence, coupled with Diane's odd behavior and the countless eyewitness accounts, inconsistencies in the blood spatter evidence, which we can talk about later, and Christie's silent but profoundly loud reaction to seeing her mother for the first time after the attack was enough for police to arrest Diane Downs on February 28th of 1984, nine months after the shooting occurred, and charge her with one count of murder and two counts of attempted murder and criminal assault. To police, it was quite obvious what had happened. Diane drove her children out to a desolate road in the middle of the night to shoot them and claim it was an old, straggly-haired stranger who would do so and would try to corroborate that by shooting herself in the forearm. Her motive? To get rid of her children and make herself available to Robert Knickerbocker. Diane entered a plea of not guilty, as expected, to a courtroom presided by Judge Gregory Foote. In the same way that I just laid it out for you, lead prosecutor Fred Hughey laid the motive out for the jury. It was straightforward and one easily conveyed. Robert Knickerbocker was a man who openly did not want to take any responsibility for Diane's children. And to Diane, her children were the only obstacle getting in the way between her and the life she dreamed about with Robert. During opening statements is when Fred Hughey would present this motive to the nine women, three man jury. Diane was fixated on a man who insisted that children were simply not a part of the fantasy life they had daydreamed about together during their affair. To solidify this, Hughie would read some of Diane's diary entries to the jury, the longer versions of the ones that I had mentioned before. During this trial, both the prosecution and the defense spun different narratives of Diane using her 1982 surrogacy as the catalyst to fuel their respective portrayals of her. I can't say that I agree with the way prosecutor Fred Hughie spun his story, but he argued to the jury that Diane's surrogacy was an act of selfishness, as she was paid approximately $10,000 to do it. He used this to slander Diane's character, saying that only a selfish woman would ever give up a child for money, which is totally not the point of surrogacy at all, but go off, I guess. In the prosecution's eyes, Diane was a selfish woman, someone who had just attempted to murder all three children that she had in order to spend a life with a man in a different state who was married to another woman. And to them, she had gone as far as to shoot herself in her own forearm to get this mission accomplished. Defense attorney Jim Jagger, on the other hand, argued that clearly motherhood was so important to Diane that not only would she never dream of killing her own children, but she was so compelled to help facilitate the process of becoming a mother for someone else. 
and Diane would later get on the stand and testify in her own defense. A controversial play, but one that allowed her to plead this to the jury. Motherhood was paramount to the purpose of her life. She described to the courtroom that on the night of the shooting around 10 p.m., a strange, shaggy-haired man flagged down her vehicle on Mohawk Road, and so Diane pulled over and got out of the car to see if she could help. The man would then threaten Diane and demanded the keys to her 1983 Nissan, and when she refused, he pulled out the handgun and began shooting. Cheryl, who was only seven years old and sitting in the front seat, was shot twice with both bullets entering her chest. Same with Christy, who was only eight years old and was sitting in the back. Stephen Daniel, who was only three years old at the time, was shot once in the back, and lastly, Diane herself was shot in the left forearm. Diane would then go on to tell the jury that she overpowered the man after the shooting and shoved him to the ground. Without wasting a second, she got back in her vehicle and sped away. To end off her testimony, Diane would also try and preserve her image as someone who was born to be a loving mother by telling the jury that in fact she only married Steve Downs for the purposes of getting away from her family, with her parents subscribing to the strict fundamentalist Baptist church, and for the purposes of having children. Diane testified that she wanted her own family so bad and was elated to be a mother because it gave her a chance to create her own family and distance herself from her allegedly borderline abusive and neglectful parents. But the problem with getting on the stand in your own trial is that although you're able to tell your version of events directly to the jury, you are also now subject to cross-examination by the prosecution. It's the perfect opportunity for the prosecuting attorney to poke holes in your story and make mountains out of molehills. If there's any single aspect of your defense that doesn't perfectly line up when you're on the stand, the prosecution will highlight, underline, bold, italicize, and capitalize it. And when you're up there, you have to be able to come up with an answer because any hesitation or subtle cues that point towards dishonesty will be picked up on by the jury, and everything you do and say in that moment will directly influence their decision about your guilt. And as expected, prosecutor Fred Hughie was able to highlight a striking inconsistency in Diane's story about the account of the stranger who allegedly shot her and her children. To the courtroom on the stand, Diane had said it was a shaggy-haired stranger, but to police during interviews before the trial even started, Diane testified that it was two men in ski masks that knew her by name. In phone conversations with Robert Knickerbocker, she said it was a hitman who was hired by her ex-husband, Steve. During cross-examination, Diane's defense attorney, Jim Jagger, argued back at this that Diane must have misremembered the events due to the trauma that she had endured. He told the jury that Diane Downs was living in a waking nightmare after the shooting, and that it had become increasingly difficult to tell the difference between her nightmares reliving the event versus what actually happened. However, this directly contradicted the demeanor of Diane observed by many people after the shooting took place. Diane was cool, calm, and collected, even comfortable, and the testimony given by Dr. John Mackey, who was the attending emergency physician present at the hospital when Diane and her children arrived, corroborated that. His opinion as both a witness and a doctor was that Diane was unnervingly calm and lucid the entire time she was in the emergency room. 
And to many other people, this was exactly how she was behaving for quite some time after the shooting, and it didn't seem like she was struggling to discern reality from traumatic nightmares. As well, there were the several witnesses who claimed to have seen Diane driving well under the speed limit to the hospital after the shooting with her children literally bleeding out in the car. To them, Diane's behavior was the exact opposite of someone who was panicking, someone who was traumatized. It was the behavior of someone who knew what they were doing. To the prosecution, this entire ordeal was planned, so the argument posed by the defense that Diane was frantic, panicked, and traumatized, and thus was struggling to remember things correctly was just simply not the case. She knew the events were going to play out the way they did, at least for a few days beforehand, and thus had ample time time to rehearse the events in her mind before they happened, and prime her brain to witness the gruesome crime that she was ready to commit. Aside from casting doubt on the reliability of Diane's story and presenting the jury with the casings found in her home with the same extractor marks as the bullets from the scene, the prosecution had been working with their star witness for months before the trial to prepare her for testifying against her own mother. Christy Downs, the surviving daughter of Diane Downs, who was only eight years old when she was shot in the back seat of her mother's car and suffered a debilitating stroke. Christy had been working in therapy with Paula Krogdahl, the counselor in charge of helping Christy regain her speech and memory after the stroke. Christy had been unable to speak for a long time. If you remember, she could only express herself via attempted facial expressions and did so when she saw her mother for the first time after the shooting. Everyone in the room when that happened said Christy looked petrified, and I'm sure that if she could have been screaming, she probably would have. She'd been working with Krogdahl for months, opening up little by little with each milestone she reached while relearning to talk and function again. Christy Downs would recall to her counselor that it was in fact not some stranger who shot her and her siblings, killing Cheryl and paralyzing Danny. Christy Downs would come to terms with over the course of months that her sister Cheryl wasn't crying in the front seat of the car when the shooting happened because she was dead, because her mother had killed her, and that it was Diane, not some straggly-haired stranger or ski-masked hitman that reached over and shot her in the chest. Led by the lead prosecutor, Fred Hugie, young Christie was placed on the witness stand with a box of tissues and was asked, Do you remember when you got shot? Who shot you? The two words that would seal Diane's fate coming from Christie herself, My mom. On June 17th of 1984, the jury would convict Diane Downs on all counts and sentence her to life in prison plus 50 years. Diane would be required to serve at least 25 years before being eligible for parole, but Judge Gregory Foote made it explicitly clear that he did not intend for Diane to be paroled, making her sentences consecutive. Under the law in the state of Oregon, Diane's designation as a dangerous offender ensured that she would not be eligible for parole until 2009. Many jurisdictions have similar designations, but in Oregon, it essentially ensures that an individual can be imprisoned indefinitely as long as certain criterion are met. 
Either the individual in question has been convicted of another felony as well as the one they're being imprisoned for in the same state, or the individual is suffering from a severe personality disorder indicating propensity towards crimes that seriously endanger the life or safety of another. Mind you, Diane was diagnosed with narcissistic, hysteronic, and antisocial personality disorder while in custody. This designation as a dangerous offender under Oregon state law, which is like many other jurisdictions, ensures that her case will be reviewed every two years until she is eligible for parole or she dies in prison. Although the overwhelming consensus online is that it is highly unlikely that Diane will ever be released with her most recent attempt at parole happening this past January in 2021. Diane's two surviving children, Christy and Stephen Daniel, after the trial was over, were actually adopted by prosecutor Fred Hughey and his wife Joanne in 1986, and just prior to Diane's arrest, she was actually pregnant again, although I'm not sure by who, and gave birth only a month before the trial started in 84. The baby girl was seized by the state of Oregon as well as Danny and Christy before they were adopted by the Hugies, but this baby was adopted by another couple who named her Rebecca. Rebecca was actually featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show and ABC's 2020 in the year 2019, and if you're looking for a heartwarming tale of resilience and seeking identity, then I highly suggest you take a look at her interviews. Unfortunately, however, being adopted by loving families did not save Diane's biological children from being thrusted into the limelight and shrouded by their mother's infamy. The Hugies, after adopting Diane's two surviving children who were present at the time of the shooting, tried to give their new kids as much support as possible, and that included cutting off any of the Downs' familial ties. Christy and Danny had a very long and unsteady road to recovery ahead of them, both emotionally and physically, and the Hugies felt it was important, especially after being so involved in their initial healing process, being the prosecution and all, that they should live in an environment that would only facilitate that healing. In 1989, the Hughie family attorney, Henry Campbell, had to write to Mr. and Mrs. Fredrickson, Diane's fundamentalist Baptist parents, and ask them to please refrain from trying to contact the Hugies, especially Christy and Danny. This letter in part reads, quote, Hughie has shown me a letter you wrote him in which you refer to Christy and Daniel as your grandchildren and indicate you wanted a visit in order to help the healing process. The children are not your grandchildren. You are legally, as well as factually, a stranger to them. These children have been through too much already. Your daughter killed their sister and shot each of them. They have since been exposed to the harsh light of publicity. Christy went through the painful experience of testifying as a witness in the murder trial. Contact with you or others from their past would reopen, not heal, old wounds. The children are healing now and their parents do not want them hurt anymore. I'll be honest, it's a bit unclear to me from my research why Steve Downs was not granted custody of the children after the whole ordeal, but some sources dispute his fitness as a parent, and I think it's reasonable to conclude that such a traumatic event would render anybody less capable of taking care of anyone, let alone dependents. Diane was incarcerated at the Oregon Women's Correctional Center in Salem, Oregon, and for the third case in a row on the Crimopedia podcast, Diane escaped from prison on July 11th of 1987. Diane would scale an 18-foot razor wire fence and was on the run for 10 whole days with law enforcement agencies from 14 different states looking for her. 
An alarm on the outside of the fence she climbed rang off, but apparently the prison guards didn't take it very seriously as that alarm was known to trigger falsely on our semi-regular basis. However, when a nurse at the jail arrived for her 9 a.m. shift, she noted that a suspicious looking woman was creeping around the jail with really no sense of direction or purpose, so prison officials would quickly do a sweep and find that Diane was in fact missing. What's interesting to me is that upon searching her cell, the correctional employees found a scrap of paper she left behind with a hand-drawn map of the surrounding area with X marks the spot on a specific house. Police were actually able to retrieve the address of this house drawn on the map, and after two days of surveillance, were able to re-arrest Diane Downs, as well as four other men who were charged with hindering prosecution, a charge analogous to aiding and abetting in Canada. This whole prison escape ordeal is relevant to me at least because Fred Hughie would later campaign in court to have Diane transferred to a prison in New Jersey out of fear of retaliation. It didn't sit right to Fred Hughie knowing that a woman who tried to kill his now children was able to get free so close to their family home. Who knows what Diane is capable of planning or doing? Who knows if she had retaliation on the brain? It's hard to say. And so she was in fact transferred to that prison in New Jersey. At the time of publishing this episode, Diane Downs will be 65 years old, and to this day, she still continuously denies responsibility for the murder of her daughter Cheryl and the attempted murder of her other two children. In one jailhouse interview, she even says, Can you imagine how hard it is to find a murderer when you aren't looking for one? And this is a sentiment echoed by a relatively large online community. According to Lane County District Attorney Douglas Hasselrode, Diane continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior, and he points exactly to her ever-changing version of events. But despite the evidence put forth being enough for a jury to convict Diane, compounded with the apparent lack of remorse on her part, like I mentioned, there is a relatively large online community who actively campaigns for Diane's innocence. These people maintain that Diane's inappropriate behavior after the shooting and what is obvious to some as Duper's delight was merely an odd trauma response and is not at all indicative of her involvement. For reference, duping delight is the pleasure of being able to manipulate someone and is most often recognized in people who can't hold back an awkward and inappropriate smile in times of turmoil. For example, if you thought your boyfriend was cheating on you and you confronted him and he had a weird smirk on his face the whole time you guys were arguing, some might call that duper's delight. Diane, on the other hand, in my opinion, was demonstrating one of the most textbook cases of it during her interviews after the shooting. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, if you've ever seen photos or videos of Diane, like I'm sure some of you have, you probably know exactly the smile of hers I'm talking about, the one she can't seem to hold back when retelling the version of events to reporters. But this kind of thing doesn't phase the online community dedicated to outlining the flaws in the prosecution's case against Diane. Many people find her innocent and point to a lack of physical evidence. And I gotta be honest, most of my research consisted of analyzing circumstantial stuff and witness testimony, but if you listen to my episode on Ronald Cotton, you'll know why that's problematic. After Diane's conviction, 
There was some back and forth between sides in the courtroom and there exists an affidavit where her defense attorney, Jim Jagger, claimed that there were numerous documents that were withheld from him during discovery, some of which were potentially exculpatory. Like I mentioned before, discovery is simply the process that occurs before a trial begins where both the defense and the prosecution get together and share all of the evidence they've collected. This is just another part of the legal process in North America, and it's a very big deal if there's a non-disclosure on part of either sides. In fact, it's usually grounds for motion to appeal a conviction. In another affidavit, there are discussions about potentially destroyed physical evidence and evidence logs, some of which were approximately 4,700 pages long with considerable information about other potential suspects in the shooting of Diane's children. William Teasdale of the Public Defender's Office in Sherwood, Oregon, signed court documents stating that he had seen these documents with his own eyes, but upon trying to summon them at a later date, was told by a detective that those files had been destroyed long before, which is impossible since Teasdale saw them himself. I'm not entirely sure where this trail of potentially exculpatory documents leads, but clearly somebody is lying, and there's really no need to do that unless someone has something to hide. But I'll leave that up for you guys to dig into if you'd like. Remember, all source material is located on my website at crimopediapod.ca under the episodes tab. Each episode has its own page. You can click on it, view all the sources, go into the rabbit hole yourself. There are additional pieces of documentation, in large part provided by the author of dianedowns.com, which will also be linked in my sources, that highlight certain inconsistencies in what should be the facts of the case. There is a report from the Mackenzie Williamette Memorial Hospital where Diane and her children ended up after the shooting, which discusses the removal of the bullet lodged in Christie's chest. The report indicates that based on the position of the bullet, which was removed seven full days after the shooting, the attacker must have been aiming the gun at Christie at an approximate 45 degree angle and Christie must have been crouching or laying down at the time. But this report is inconsistent with Christie's own testimony on the witness stand, where she recounted to the courtroom that she was apparently sitting upright at the time of the shooting and had her mom in full view. Her testimony was also inconsistent with the blood spatter analysis that was conducted on the vehicle, and the conclusion of that report was that Christie was laying down, which corroborates Diane's own version of events. People also point out inconsistencies in the ballistics report conducted by John Murdoch, the director of the Contra Costa County Laboratory in the Sheriff's Department of Martinez, California, United States. When conducting ballistics, Murdoch took very detailed notes, admittedly many of which are hard to follow, at least for me. But according to the analysis of those notes by the author of dianedowns.com, who, let me just fully disclose, heavily advocates for Diane's innocence, there are numerous discrepancies in Murdoch's analysis of the extractor marks which were central to the prosecution's argument about Diane's guilt. Apparently, when asked about these discrepancies over the phone, Murdoch allegedly stated that he couldn't comment on his analysis without the presence of an attorney, and wouldn't speak on the matter any further, which is, yeah, obviously the right move, don't talk without your lawyer, but I think your notes and formal analysis that was presented in court are supposed to speak for themselves. The physical evidence is supposed to speak for itself, and honestly, I'm not entirely sure that it does. I'll be honest, do I know anything about ballistics? No. 
There is only so much reading online one can do about extractor marks before my sheer lack of forensic experience renders it totally useless. But again, you can find the link to dianedowns.com on my website at crimopediapod.ca, or I mean, you can just look it up because I just told you what the URL is. But the author of this website is very thorough in examining the evidence available to the public. With all of this in mind, I think it's very important to highlight that Christy, at the time of testifying against her own mother for the prosecution after recovering from a stroke, was only eight years old and had just suffered an unimaginable trauma. Many people point to this state of being as a highly impressionable one and thus render her testimony unreliable based on the potential for persuasion and priming by the prosecution. This is very important because Christie's testimony was essentially what sealed the deal for Diane's fate in the courtroom and what likely caused the jury to miss any inconsistencies in the physical evidence presented, if there really are any inconsistencies at all. Again, I'm not an expert. What I can tell you though is my opinion, which is something I don't usually do, but I've tried my best to give you a well-rounded picture of this case in its entirety both what the defense said and the prosecution, and potential problems with both of their arguments. Do I think Diane Downs is innocent? No, I don't. I think Diane did shoot her children and intended to kill all three, and then I think she shot herself in the forearm in order to corroborate her story about an alleged carjacking that turned violent. And I think the prosecution hit the nail on the head with the motive about Robert Knickerbocker. I think Diane Downs was madly in love with a man who didn't really want anything to do with her after she moved state. I think she took their relationship more seriously than he did. And I think she was willing to kill her own children to get what she wanted. But do I think Diane Downs was granted due process? My distinctly amateur opinion says no. If potentially exculpatory documents or anything of the sort that could potentially cast reasonable doubt really were withheld from the defense during discovery, that's enough for me to warrant suspicion into the trial proceedings. But I'll let you guys come to your own conclusions. And I'd like to hear what you have to say. Feel free to reach out to me on Instagram if you're interested in discussing the details of this case. You can find me at crimopediapod. I try to respond to every DM that I get. And if there's any legal scholars out there, potentially from the state of Oregon, I'd like to hear what you have to say about all this. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Crimopedia, and I hope you all enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed making it. Feel free to follow me wherever you're listening now, and be sure to reach out to me again on Instagram or by email at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. I think the lesson in today's case is that if you're considering killing someone to pursue another life that you've talked about with someone else, maybe just don't do that. Maybe just leave. You can always get a divorce. You can always put children up for adoption. It's not nice. It's not fun. But you don't just get to kill people. And if you do decide to do that and you're as bad of a liar as Diane Downs, then you're likely going to get caught and spend the rest of your life in prison. Just make sure your duper's delight doesn't get the best of you, and make sure that awkward smile doesn't come through when you're talking to reporters after it's all said and done. Yes, I'm looking at you, Chris Watts. That's all for me today, everybody. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe as the summer has finally ended. 
I'm hoping that this is the end of the coronavirus lockdowns for everybody in the world. I'm not sure how things will be by the time of publishing this episode, but as of right now, vaccination rates everywhere are going up and we love to see it. So I hope you're all staying safe and doing well and I'll talk to you soon. Music